If you have a Bible, Nehemiah is where we're going to be today. If you don't have a Bible like at all, there is a Bible on the back of the pew in front of you. And uh, if you want to take that Bible, that is our gift to you. Nehemiah chapter 9 is where we will be today. We began this series back in September. And by God's grace and His will, we will end the book of Nehemiah on the 26th of November, and then December 3rd, first week of Advent, we will begin the book of Ruth, and we're going to walk through the book of Ruth through the Advent season and connect Christ to it all, looking at Christ the King that the whole book of Ruth is pointing to. So start reading through the book of Ruth, and uh, we're going to jump in, Lord willing, the first week in December. Uh, We love the Bible. If you're new here at PVC, we believe that when the Bible talks, God talks. And so when we open the Bible, we're opening the mouth of God. And so the Bible is the authority that drives all that we do here. We seek to set preferences aside. We seek to set things that um, are not of eternal value aside. And, And we let the Bible do what the Bible does. And that is speak on behalf of the eternal God of the ages. Now let me remind you, the point of the Bible is not merely for information. The point of the Bible is that your transformation would occur, that you would see in the Bible the Word of God, you would be driven to see that you can't measure up to the Word of God, and you need a Savior, and that in Jesus you have a Savior, and that if you'll look to Him by faith, He'll save you, He'll put His Spirit in you, and now the Bible will begin to make sense to you. If you're here today and you're like, the Bible, I don't even really really know what it's about, well, that's okay. At one time, we were all there. And by God's grace, we've been saved and our eyes have been opened and now we love the Bible and we want you to love it too. We don't worship the Bible, but we worship the God who wrote the Bible and so we're grateful to have the Word of God. All that to say that today as we look through Nehemiah chapter 9, my job really is to explain the Bible. My job is to give context, give background, and make sure that you have an accurate understanding of what the Bible says about this particular chapter in it, and then the Spirit of God is going to bring application, some of the application I'm going to give you of how to apply the text that God gave me as I labored over the passage this week. Other times, the Spirit of God is going to drop stuff on me in the moment, and we're going to seek to apply it in the moment. But either way, the Word of God is given, not merely for your information, but actually for your transformation. So let's ask God for help and then we're going to jump in. Father, we bless you. We thank you for your word. What a gift your word is to our soul. We pray that, God, we wouldn't take for granted the fact that we have a copy of your word in our language. We pray today that as we, God, look at Nehemiah chapter 9, that you would show us yourself, that you would show us our sin, that you would show us our Savior. Pray for those in our midst, Lord, who are seeking and searching and They are kicking the tires, if you will, upon Christianity, trying to understand what is all this about. God, would you reveal yourself to them in the text of Scripture today? Would you feed us today? We are hungry children. Uh, We need to be fed. Would you satisfy us by your truth, for your word is truth. And Lord, my role really is like a butler. I'm just serving this meal. And I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would help us pick up our spiritual forks and knives and feast upon the truth 
that is bound here in this text. We ask it in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. What is Christian revival? What does it look like when a revival takes place? When you think about revival, um, and I think about revival, I grew up in the church, maybe like you did, and so when I think about revival, I think about scheduling revivals. I think about a preacher preaching on Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, sometimes Thursday, sometimes Friday, um, but it was usually a good three or four week, or three or four days, and every night we'd have a special preacher and a special speaker, and we scheduled a revival in the fall, and we scheduled a revival in the spring. Others of you, when you think about revival, you might think about like a big white tent somewhere in the middle of nowhere, and you're thinking about some wild activity that might go on there, and kind of not certain about the legitimacy of all of those antics that you may see. So I don't know what you think about when you think about revival, or another word would be awakening. When you think about God moving at a period in time, I don't really know what you think, but I think a really good, healthy definition of the word revival is the intensification of what God is always doing. Revival is the intensification, the concentration of God doing in a moment of history what He is always doing. God is always saving. God is always healing. God is always showing people their need for Him. God is always showing people that need Him, that in Him is all that they need if they would look to Him and Him alone. God is always doing that. But for sometimes in periods of history and at certain churches and movements, God will manifest His awakening in a really powerful way, and we would call that revival. One such period that a legitimate revival or an awakening took place is in the early 1700s in this country when we were a very infant nation. Please don't forget, America is a very young nation. And in the 1700s, what was called the Great Awakening from a couple of men, preachers, a number of them, but two of notable ones, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, were used greatly by God. And God, in His sheer act of grace, came in a powerful way upon the colonies at that time. Lives were changed. God's people were stirred. What happened when they came, these pilgrims, came to escape the Church of England and what was going on there, and they came here for religious freedom. After they, when they first arrived here, they had one mindset, but after a little while, they got real comfortable and, and real uh, 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 okay with just going through the motions of religiosity, attend church, do this, do this, do this, do that, and God used a couple of preachers, well, a couple of them before five of them, to awaken the people of God to see that they need to come back to their God. And when revival takes place, there are things that are marks of it. In other words, there are certain things that will always happen when revival is taking place and God is manifesting in an intense way His work of what He's always doing. Last week in Nehemiah chapter 8 was another one of those moments in history. Chapter 7 was the Jerusalem phone book as we read about all those Jews in chapter 7. Chapter 8, they opened the Word of God. 
And by the way, if you, if, I don't have time to give all the background of Nehemiah, so if you're new, go to Spotify, go to YouTube, go to Facebook Live, watch all these sermons to get caught up on what in the world is going on in Nehemiah. I don't have time to go through all of that, but it's important information. But what you need to know is in chapter 8 is when the people of God open the Word of God and they wept. They cried. They were sobbing because they realized we have not acted in accordance with God, and they repented. So two things that you should always write, you should write down and note. When a revival takes place, there's always a reordering of Scripture. People come back to the authority of Scripture over their life. And second of all, there's heartfelt repentance where they have not allowed Scripture. So the reordering of Scripture, the repentance of sin. Now in chapter 8, when the word is open, they weep. You remember last week, Nehemiah told them, really Ezra told them, don't weep. Remember, it was a festival season, and it was the Feast of Trumpets, and they were told, don't weep, rejoice. But now, three and a half weeks later, in chapter 9, verse 1, three and a half weeks later, they have unfinished business with God. And in chapter 9, 38 verses, and in chapter you have the fullest summary of the Old Testament in the Old Testament. You should remember that. Nehemiah 9 is the fullest summary of the Old Testament in the Old Testament. So if you're like, Jordan, I don't have a clue about what in the world the Old Testament is about. Nehemiah 9 is your chapter. Because Nehemiah 9 is the greatest chapter and summary of the Old Testament in the Old Testament. So if you get Nehemiah 9, Nehemiah 9 down, you will be up to speed on what the Old Testament is really about. Here's the big idea from Nehemiah 9. Here's the big idea in seasons of sin, you can experience God's restoring mercy by repenting of sin and retelling God's work in history. In seasons of sin, seasons where you've been away from God, seasons where you have been places and done things and that God would not be pleased by, if you will repent of that and you will retell the story of God in your life and in the greater reality of Scripture in the world, then God will use that to reveal to you that He is a merciful God. He is a good God. He's a faithful God. Three points today to bring that home. Number one, in verses one to five, I want you to see this is a repenting people. Repenting people. Now, it says, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth, and with earth on their heads. Now, these are signs of repentance. Fasting, physically challenging. If you don't know what fasting is, it means you don't eat on purpose. Fasting, there are seasons where you should not eat on purpose. I know it sounds nuts, and I'm not talking intermittent fasting here to lose weight. I'm talking not eating because your heart is so broken over what you have done before God. Mourning, fasting. Where I am so broken over this that I can't even eat. I don't even want to eat because of how I have offended my God. Second of all, notice sackcloth. This is camel hair, okay? This is getting camel hair and putting it on you. Very uncomfortable. You ever had camel hair on you? I don't suspect you have. I have it. But they would put camel hair on them as a way to show that they're uncomfortable. And then finally, they would put earth. Literally, the Hebrew word here is dirt. 
They would put dirt on their face. These were all signs of repentance. Now, what I'm telling you is that I'm not saying that when you mourn that we necessarily need to put camel hair on us or your dog hair or some other hair that you would find. I'm not necessarily saying that you need to go out and get mud and put it on your face and say, I am, I am broken over this. There should be seasons of fasting. But really, the heart of this, this is all uh, ethical, by the way, or ethnical. This is what Jews did to demonstrate their repentance. Whatever it is, the principle here is you should take sin very serious. And for you not to take sin serious means you don't take God serious. And if you don't take God serious, then you will see no need to repent and come clean before God. So we should follow their heartfelt mourning over sin. Remember, Jesus told us, Matthew 5, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. A lot of times we use that in funeral contexts and say, if you'll mourn, brother, if you'll mourn, sister, over the lost, then God will comfort you. That's not what that text is talking about. What that text is talking about is mourning over sin. Blessed are those who will mourn. Obviously, God comforts those in funerals, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't ask God to do that. I'm just simply saying that text is more about you mourning, and it's a good thing. Because here's the promise. If you will mourn over your sin before God, God will comfort you. He will bring healing to you. Friend, when is the last time you mourned before God over the ways that you have offended him. As a husband, as a single, as a wife, as a widow, as a widower, whatever hat you wear, and just high level ask yourself this, do I take God, do I take sin serious? Do I flippantly just say, well, you know, everybody does it? Or do I take serious the ways that I have offended God. Notice too, and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners. Now this is those who were not pure Jews, because lest you think this is like racism, those foreigners, um, what he's really saying here is nobody else is responsible for this before God but us as a Jewish people. So we've done this to God. We've gone back on God. Don't, God, don't hold any of those other the foreign nations responsible for this. We are the ones who have rebelled against you. And we stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities, another word for sin, of their fathers. And they stood up in their place, read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and they worshiped the Lord their God. So they read the Bible for three hours publicly. They confess sin for three hours publicly. I want you to notice they see God for who he is and they see themselves for who they are. Adoration of God will always lead to confession of sin before God. When you see God for who he really is, you'll see yourself for who you really are. And I would say this, you don't really know yourself unless you view yourself in light of God. This is why the culture begins to say, I'm this and I'm this and I identify as this and this and this, because they don't see themselves in light of who God is. So when you don't see yourself in light of who God is, you make up all kinds of stuff about yourself to cope with the reality that you really are a sinner in need of a Savior. And God in His grace will meet you right there in that sin. But you've got to come to Him and recognize that I don't know who I am unless I let God tell me who I am. A lot of people are out here looking for themselves. And I always ask them, who, have you, what are you looking for? Who are you looking for? 
Well, unless you know God, you don't really know what you should be looking for. But once you know God, you now can begin to view yourself accurately. And you can reject those things about you that are just simply not true. Or maybe they are true and God can deal with them. But then you notice a group of Levites. Levites, just so you know, those are the ones who led the corporate worship. These are the Levites, two of them, two groups here. Verse 4, on the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shaniah, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, second group, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, Pethaniah, said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and all praise. Now notice, they know who they are praying to. Did you know who you pray to matters? Did you know who you pray to matters? We live in a very pluralistic and superstitious culture that says things like, it doesn't matter who you pray to, just pray to somebody and be sincere. Friends, don't buy that logic. You can be sincerely wrong about who you're praying to. Don't buy that logic because the Scripture reveals a true and living God. And so their affections are toward this God. They know who they are approaching. They're not praying, hoping that someone out there is listening. They're, they know who they're talking to. They're talking to this self-existent God. Friends, here at this church, we believe in what's called biblical revelation. So you know what that means? We don't get to tell God who God is. God gets to tell us who God is. And either we submit to that or we rebel against that, but we don't get to tell God who He is. God defines who God is. And we better make sure that we're praying to the right God and, and truly the only God. And so when Scripture begins to drive your understanding of this God, friends, you will do what they did. You will repent. You will say, blessed be this God. Bless your name. You will repent. You will confess. Second of all, not just repenting, but retelling. Retelling. Not just repenting, but retelling. In these verses, 6 to 31, we're going to move fast. These verses, the people of God are praying out loud to God and they are retelling how God has been faithful to them in the past in spite of their sin. Because they've been in sin, and they want to retell the story of how God was faithful to them in the past, and then they're pleading with God to do it again in their midst. Be, be merciful to us again, God, the same way that you have been to our ancestors, to our families in the past. This prayer, friends, is radically God-centered, radically God-centered, 85 nouns and pronouns here that all are directed toward God. You or yours is used here 85 times. So notice verse 6, you are the Lord, you alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. So notice he begins with creation here. The author of the book of Genesis, don't go to sleep yet. The author of the book of Genesis wanted to make it very clear 
that there was one God, and, and there wasn't a God over the ocean, a God over the sea, a God over the fire, a God over this, but there was one God. And it is very clear what the author is doing here is he is going back to creation. And friends, prayer begins with an acknowledgement of the greatness of God. If your prayer life is not where it needs to be, it's because you have not thought recently on the greatness of God. Because when you think on the greatness of God, you can't help but come to him with a worshipful, needy spirit. Jesus said, when we pray, we need to know that the Father knows what we need before we ask him. Isn't that good news? That before you ask God for something, he actually knows what you need before you ask him. Now, I find great solace in that. But if you have any kind of logic in your mind, you may be thinking, well, if God already knows what I need, then why do I need to ask him for what I need if he already knows what I need? And if you really ponder that question, then you will understand a very important part about prayer, and it is this. Prayer is fundamentally not about getting something from God. It's about just being with God. Prayer is not about getting something from God. It's about just communing and being with God. He says you, he says you, and you alone are God. Friend, when we pray, we get to be with God. God wants to talk to you. Isn't that incredible? He wants to talk to you. I find great comfort in this because I'm a talker. Everywhere I go, I'm just talking to people about coffee, about the weather, about this, about this, about that. And all seeking to tie it at some point to a gospel conversation. But can I tell you, some people don't want to talk to me. I, I feel like I walk in some places and this is what they think. Here he comes again. <laughs> He's going to want to talk. And they don't want to talk to me. But, but this is what I find solace in. God actually wants to talk to me. He actually wants to commune with me. And I would be such a fool to not take advantage of his invitation to just be with him and just commune with him and just glory in all that he is. Oh, that we would learn to say yes to God's invitation to just be with him. I just want to ask you, have you just been with him lately? Have you just been with him lately? You may have to get up earlier than you want or stay up later than you want, but you got to be with him. Friend, you're not going to make it in all that he's called you to do if you don't just be with him. Notice 7, you are alone of the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of the Ur of the, Ur of the Chaldeans. Now that's Genesis 12. And gave him the name Abraham. That's Genesis 17. You found his heart to be faithful, faithful before you. That's Genesis 15. And made with him a covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promises for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. That's Exodus 3. And heard their cry at the Red Sea. That's a few more chapters in Exodus. And then Tim, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh. That's the plagues, the frogs, the gnats, and so on. All the plagues that God brought. And all the servants of the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself. As it is to this, act, this day. And you, verse 11, divided the sea before them so that they went through 
the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. That's Exodus 13. Then notice 13. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments, 14. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. That's Exodus 20. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. You told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Now we're in the book of Joshua, verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Their leader is Aaron. You remember Exodus 32? They make a golden calf because they thought God was taking too long up there. So they make a golden calf. They stiffen their neck. And he says, but you are a God ready to forgive. That's one of the most hopeful phrases in the Bible. God stands ready to forgive. Can I tell you this? God is more ready to forgive you than you are ready to repent. Listen, if you will repent and turn to Jesus, He will have you. He will have you. It is because you won't come that He won't forgive you. It's not that He's not willing, it's just you won't come. And notice 18, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. Notice the pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit, probably a reference to the 70 elders, by the way, in Numbers 11 when they build the temple to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. For 21, 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. And let, let me say, say this about them. God, God gave them everything. They lacked nothing and they appreciated nothing that he did. Notice their clothes did not um, their, their, they, their, their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Can you imagine walking around for 40 years and your feet didn't swell? Any of you basketball players, you like to play a pickup game? You, you know, I, I realize I'm 38 and you're like, that's not old. I have shoes older than that, Jordan. But even for me, when I'm on my feet all day, it's amazing how they'll start to swell a bit. Yet 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, God says, I did not even let their feet swell. And you gave them, book of Joshua, kingdoms and peoples and a lot of them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. That's Joshua 11. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. You brought them in the land and you told their fathers to enter and possess. Verse 24, so the descendants went in and possessed the land and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things 
things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted in themselves. Why did God do all that? Notice, in your great goodness. Friends, God has been so good to us. When you consider the grace that God has given in making provision for your family, a home, food, drink, job, friends, church family, most of all your salvation, and when you and I go left or right and we rebel against God, what we're telling God is I don't care about all your blessings, I just want my sin. The sinfulness of sin watch this now, is lacking gratitude to God for all that he has done for you. 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back. Another way to say they ignored God's word and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, 27, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer and in the time of their suffering they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. It's amazing. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors. That's judges. Think Deborah. Think others. Who saved them from the hand of their enemies. Notice what they do, but here's more rebellion, 28. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them, you disciplined them, to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet, here comes mercy, here comes mercy. When they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. He goes on, 29, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them, now we're in the king's, and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. That's the exile when God kicks them out of the land. Nevertheless, 31, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And we should praise God for that. When we're told that we have a merciful Father in heaven and God tells us that we should give mercy to others the way that God has given mercy to us, you ought to think back to Nehemiah chapter 9. When God demonstrated his mercy to people, if you think you don't have any mercy left for them, go read Nehemiah 9 and see how much mercy God had for his people and ask the Spirit of God to put that in you to give to your husband, your wife, your friends, whoever, who you think they should just shape up or ship out. God wants to use you to demonstrate his mercy and his kindness to them just like he did in his people's life in Nehemiah chapter 9. That's a lot. That's a lot. So, so there is repenting, there is retelling, and finally I want you to see what the people do. They are resigning, resigning. They re, they're repenting, they're retelling, and now they're going to resign. Now therefore, see that? Therefore, 32, our God, the great, mighty, awesome God. This sounds a lot like Nehemiah's prayer in chapter 1. 
who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people. Since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day, yet, 33, you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, notice this, and we have acted wickedly. No blame shifting, total ownership, we did it, God. Verse 34, our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them. They did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, 36, we are slaves to this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and our lives stock as they please and we are in great distress see what they're appealing to the mercy of god and then 38 because of all this we make a firm covenant we're going to look at this next week this great covenant that they write in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes our levites and our priests now i know our hour is late but the question is what are we supposed to do with nehemiah chapter 9 um th this is a, a massive chapter and the question is, what are we supposed to do with it? Well, I, th I think one thing to think about is we pray like they did. But as you look at this, Nehemiah 9 needs some chapters added to it. Because Nehemiah 9 is not the end of the story of God. It's not the end of salvation history. And if you stop at Nehemiah 9, Nehemiah 9 then you will repeat the cycle too. You'll be obedient for a while, but then you'll rebel. You'll be obedient for a while, then you'll rebel. You'll be obedient for a while, and you'll just be caught up in Nehemiah 9. But in Jesus Christ, here's the good news, friends, the sin cycle has been broken. In Jesus Christ, God has made a way to vindicate His righteousness, His justice, all that He is, and at the same time, display mercy for sinners like you and sinners like me. Notice Romans 3, 21, what some people have called the heart of the Bible. It says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, notice, for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This was to show God's righteousness. So notice, the cross is a display of God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over, underlies that, underline that phrase, former sins. 25, 25. He had passed over former sins. Friends, that's Nehemiah 9. Nehemiah 9, in many ways, are the former sins. When you get to the end of the Old Testament, you might ask the question, like, cross your fingers and say, is God's mercy going to run out? Because when you read Nehemiah 9, what you see is, is my lands, I act this way a lot of times. I do things like this in my own way. I rebel against God. I sin against God. I do this. And does God have mercy for me? Well, in the New Testament, we have hope. Because Jesus came and he lived a perfect life. He was tempted, the Bible says, in all ways like you and I, yet he did not sin. And yet, he died in the place of those who have sinned. 
And so if you're here today and you're stuck in your sin and you've never come to Jesus, then it's only going to get worse, friend, because the cycle of sin in your life, it has to be broken. It has to be dealt with or you will continue to make the same choices that you've always made. Yet if you'll look to Jesus, he will break the back of sin's power in your life where you can begin to say yes to him and no to sin and begin to live a life that is pleasing to God. Because, friend, here's the good news of the gospel, that when God saves a person, he puts his very spirit in them. And he actually causes you to want to obey. You're like, there's certain things about like my life and my sexuality and what I think about me. I I can't ever picture myself not doing that. Well, you're limiting the power of the Spirit of God that if you would believe and you would receive Christ, the Spirit of God will come in you and he will begin to break the power of those behaviors that you said that you never could stop doing. The power of the gospel. Friend, there will be a day when you won't battle sin anymore because all, 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 all of this is coming to a head. Furthermore, as Christians, as we close here, all of this is made possible because of the Savior. And this is why Nehemiah is so important because God is using Nehemiah and Ezra to preserve this Jewish people so that Jesus could be born a Jew so that he could come and save his people from their sin. That's why Nehemiah is so important. That's why Nehemiah putting these walls up is so important because it will save the people, the Jews, from the brutality of the other nations so that Jesus could become a Jew and do what he was planning to come and do to save his people from their sin. So Nehemiah 9, may we be reminded we need to be a repenting people a retelling people, and we need to finally be a resigning people, a people who will resign ourselves to the sheer mercy of God in spite of our sin that Jesus and Jesus alone can save and can also simultaneously break the power of sin in our lives. So friends, we fight sin today, do we not? I mean, I get up every day and just, it's a battle. It's a battle because nobody gives Jordan more trouble than Jordan. I give Jordan a lot of trouble because there's things where I thought, Lord, I thought I'd be further along than this by now. I thought I would not be tempted by that anymore. I thought I wouldn't do this and this and this, but I, I'm reminded every day that I'm, I'm, I'm battling this thing with the, the power that God has put in me, and I'm not fighting as a victim. I'm not a victim. I'm a victor because Jesus has already won, and now I have the Spirit's power to wage war against sin. May we find great joy in Nehemiah 9 as we look to our Savior. Our Father, great is your name. You are greatly to be praised. Lord, I'm grateful for a gracious people in this room that would stay a little bit longer today because this chapter is worthy of our attention, worthy of thinking about cycles of sin. And Lord, there are some in this room right now who are caught up in cycles of sin. And to one degree, we all are. And there's things in our life that we wish were different. There's patterns of behavior that we're trying to break. Could be attitude, could be a deed, could be a word, could be a thought. And yet, God, we find ourselves um, continuing to lose the battle sometimes. So I pray, God, that you would strengthen your people today, that you would use this text to remind us that you are not too far off that you cannot save, that you are not too far away that you will not come near and you will not forgive us, your people, and love us and walk with us. We're so grateful that we could never measure up to your standard, and that's why you became a man. We thank you, Jesus, that you never sinned one time. It's unfathomable for me to think about, and yet it is true. 
And we're grateful that that is true because you are the only one uniquely qualified to die in the place of sinners. Would you take a moment there where you're at and just ask God to strengthen you for the week ahead? sin cycles, patterns of sin. When you read Nehemiah 9, I hope you see yourself. God has been good to you and yet you do good for a while but then you go back and then you do good and then you go back. That's all of us, friend. You're not alone. You're not alone. And yet God, He wants you to own that. Ask Him for new strength and then depend on His power day by day. If you're here in this room and you're like, this really does not make a whole lot of sense to me, all this. Would you just take this time as we sing this great song, How Great Thou Art, for you to tell God, I I don't fully understand why these people think that you're so great. Would you reveal your greatness to me? Thank you that your gospel is true, Lord. Thank you that you love to save sinners. You love to leave the 99 and go after the one sheep and bring them home. Thank you for that. Thank you that you are a merciful, gracious God. We pray now as we sing this song that you would hear our praise, Lord. That you be honored as we sing. Would you stand with us, friends, if you're able? And we sing this old song that never is old. Its truth is never old. How great thou art.